Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris today. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 5th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. We normally start out with the weather forecast reading first thing, but today, because it's top of mind for all of us, let's begin with the story of the school shooting in Perry, which appears on the front page of the Courier today. The story came to the Courier by way of the Associated Press. The title is, Police Say 17-Year-Old Killed 6th Grader, Wounded 5 in Perry, Iowa, School Shooting, Suspect is Dead. Dateline, Perry, Iowa. A 17-year-old opened fire at a small-town Iowa high school on the first day of school after the winter break, killing a 6th grader and wounding five others Thursday as students barricaded in offices, ducked into classrooms, and fled in panic. The suspect, a student at the school in Perry, died of what investigators believe is a self-inflicted gunshot wound, an Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation official said. Authorities said one of the five people wounded was an administrator and later identified as Perry High School Principal Dan Marburger by an Eastern Iowa school district where he graduated from high school. Authorities identified the student as Dylan Butler, 17, and provided no information about a possible motive. Perry has about 8,000 residents and is about 40 miles northwest of Des Moines on the edge of the state capital's metropolitan area. It is home to a large pork processing plant and low-slung single-story homes spread among trees now shorn of their leaves by winter. The high school and middle school are connected, sitting on the east edge of town. Authorities said the shooter had a pump-action shotgun and a small-caliber handgun. Mitch Mordvet, the State Investigation Division's assistant director, said during a news conference that authorities also found a, quote, pretty rudimentary improvised explosive device and rendered it safe. The suspect's motive is being investigated, and authorities are looking into, quote, a number of social media posts he made around the time of the shooting, Mortvet added. All of the shootings occurred inside the high school, but he said other students from other grades may have been there for a breakfast program. High school senior Ava Augustus said she was in a counselor's office waiting for hers to arrive when she heard three shots. She and other people barricaded the door, preparing to throw things if necessary, with a window being too small for an escape. Quote, and then we hear, he's down, you can get out, Augustus said through tears. And I run and you can see glass everywhere, blood on the floor. I get to my car and they're taking a girl out of the auditorium who had been shot in her leg. Three gunshot victims were taken by ambulance to Iowa Methodist Medical Center in Des Moines, a spokesperson for its health care system said. Some other patients were transported to a second hospital in Des Moines, a spokesperson for Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center, confirmed, declining to comment on the number of patients or their statuses. Vigils were planned Thursday evening at a park and a local church. A post on the high school's Facebook page said it would be closed Friday, with counseling services 
planned at the public library Friday and Saturday. In Washington, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland was briefed on the shooting. FBI agents from the Omaha Des Moines office were assisting with the investigation led by the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation. The shooting occurred in the backdrop of Iowa's first-in-the-nation presidential caucuses. GOP candidate Vivek Ramaswamy had a campaign event scheduled in Perry at 9 a.m., about one and a half miles from the high school, but canceled it to have a prayer and intimate discussion with area residents. Mass shootings across the U.S. have long brought calls for stricter gun laws from gun safety advocates, and Thursday's dead within hours. But that idea has been a non-starter for many Republicans, particularly in the rural GOP-leaning states like Iowa. As of July 2021, Iowa does not require a permit to purchase a handgun or carry a firearm in public, though it mandates a background check for a person buying a handgun without a permit. Ramaswamy said the shooting is a sign of a psychological sickness in the country. In Des Moines, GOP rival and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said that gun violence is more of a local and state issue in an interview with the Des Moines Register and NBC News. The high school in Perry is part of the 1,785-student Perry Community School District. The town is more diverse than Iowa as a whole, with census figures showing that 31% of the residents are Hispanic, compared to less than 7% for the state. Those figures also show that nearly 19% of the town's residents were born outside the United States. An active shooter was reported at 7.37 a.m. Thursday, and officers arrived seven minutes later, Dallas County Sheriff Adam Infante said. Emergency vehicles surrounded the middle and high school. Xander Shelley, 15, was in a hallway when he heard gunshots and dashed into a classroom according to his father, Kevin Shelley. Xander was grazed twice and hid in the classroom before texting his father at 7.36 a.m. Kevin Shelley, who drives a garbage truck, told his boss he had to run, quote, It was the most scared I've been in my entire life, he said. Rachel Karras, an 18-year-old senior, was wrapping up jazz band practice when she and her bandmates heard what she described as four gunshots spaced apart. Quote, we all just jumped, Kara said. My band teacher looked at us and yelled, run. So we ran. Karis and many others from the school ran out past the football field as she heard people yelling, get out, get out. She said she heard additional shots as she ran, but didn't know how many. She was more concerned about getting home to her three-year-old son. Quote, at that moment, I didn't care about anything except getting out because I had to get home with my son, she said. Erica Jolliffe said that her daughter, a ninth grader, reported getting rushed from the school grounds at 7.45 a.m. Distraught, Jolliffe was still looking for her son, Amir, a sixth grader, one hour later. Quote, I just want to know he's safe and okay, Jolliffe said. They won't tell me nothing, unquote. Let's read KCRG's weather forecast now. 
active weather pattern kicks in, with repeated chances for wintry weather. After a quieter period, we'll have multiple disturbances over the next several days that could provide at least some precipitation. One more relatively tranquil day is expected for Friday, with temperatures starting off a bit colder this morning in the low to mid-20s. Wind chills will be in the 10s, recovering toward the upper 20s to low 30s this afternoon, as winds remain fairly light. Skies will generally stay cloudy today, though a few thinner areas are possible at times. Air temperatures hit the mid-30s for highs. A storm system generally passes to our south later this evening into tonight, but it will be close enough to eastern Iowa that we could see a few snow showers move in from the south. Most of this activity would be in our central and southern zones and likely to be very late this evening or overnight. Major impacts are unlikely, but some areas could receive a dusting of snow and a few slick spots overnight. Temperatures fall to the mid-twenties. Most of Saturday will be spent dry, though we can't rule out a flurry or two underneath mostly cloudy skies. Highs will inch toward the mid to upper thirties, ahead of another disturbance that passes to our north. This brings a chance for some light snow showers again on Saturday evening and night, with the entire area getting involved in the potential. This is another time where some fairly minor snow accumulations are possible where snow occurs. Think on the order of a dusting to about half an inch. Watch out for a few slick spots late on Saturday night or even early Sunday morning before the sun comes up. Sunday carries another break with mostly cloudy skies and temperatures a few degrees cooler in the low to mid-30s for highs. Similarly, Things could be dry into Sunday night, with temperatures dipping into the 20s. The storm system for early next week is still set to develop in the southern plains, tracking to the east across the southern Ozarks, before turning northeast toward the eastern Great Lakes. This roughly Memphis to Detroit path for the low has been increasingly consistent in recent computer models that we use to help make our forecasts, lending a little increased confidence on this outcome for early next week. The low strengthens as it moves northeast, creating areas of heavier precipitation and stronger winds. For us in eastern Iowa, this system's roughest impacts have the potential to just miss by a little bit, but we won't escape wintry weather entirely. A rain-snow mix, or just snow, will move into the state on Monday, with precipitation entering eastern Iowa later in the day in particular. Snow continues into Monday night and Tuesday morning, likely making for a tricky commute to work and school. The focus for additional precipitation may tend to shift outside of the area as Tuesday goes on, closer to the track of the low. Now turning back to the front page of the Courier, Iowa physicians say proposed abortion rules vague, restrictive. Story written by Tom Barton of the Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Proposed rules meant to provide guidance to physicians for performing abortions under a new law that remains tied up in court are too vague and restrictive 
and would hinder efforts to recruit and retain physicians, doctors, and opponents argued Thursday to the Iowa Board of Medicine. The warnings came during a public hearing in advance of the board meeting January 12th to review feedback and further consider rules for the implementation of the law that would ban most abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. Lawmakers last year passed and Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law House File 732, which remains tied up in court. During a rare special session of the legislature, it would change the amount of time women have to seek an abortion from 20 weeks post-fertilization to as little as six weeks, before many women even know they're pregnant. The legislation prohibits abortions after cardiac activity is detected in an embryo. The law quickly was stayed by a Polk County District Court judge who granted a request from Iowa abortion providers to halt enforcement of the new restrictions until the law's constitutionality can be considered by the courts. While allowing the process that will draft rules for the law's implementation to continue. The proposed rules include specific guidance on how medical providers are to implement exceptions for rape, incest, fatal fetal abnormalities, and medical emergencies contained in the new law. While the ban contains some exceptions for abortions, some Iowa physicians have warned the restrictions do not account for complications that occur during pregnancy and would hinder their ability to provide care and respond to time-sensitive issues. Quote, there is no set of rules that ever adequately address the spectrum of pregnancy emergencies or private reproductive health decisions we are entitled to make for ourselves, Leah Vandenbosch of Des Moines said during the hearing. Bosch said she struggled with severe depression and eating disorders and chose to receive a safe and legal abortion due to medical concerns pregnancy would cause. Republican lawmakers and supporters of the law say the exceptions allow medical providers to exercise judgment and provide abortions when they believe one applies. Opponents contend the uncertainty and worry among physicians of potentially losing their medical license could prompt providers to put off abortions if they are uncertain. Under the proposed rules, to determine whether patients qualify for the exemptions for rape and incest, physicians would be required to gather details from women to determine when a sex act occurred, including if and when the act was first reported to law enforcement, a public or private health agency, or a family physician. Doctors would be required to document the information in the patient's medical records and make a, quote, good faith assessment that the woman is being truthful and may require them to attest the information, quote, was true and accurate to the best of their understanding, unquote. Dr. Emily Bovers, an obstetrician gynecologist in Waverly, said the rules mandate medically trained professionals to try to interpret legal concepts. Dr. Rebecca Shaw, an OBGYN and associate professor at Des Moines University, speaking on behalf of the state's sexual assault response teams, 
encouraged the board to consider input from sexual assault nurse examiners before implementing the rules. As for determining whether a fetus has an abnormality, quote, that in the physician's reasonable medical judgment is incompatible with life, unquote, doctors would be required to document diagnostic tests and procedures performed and their results, along with a description as to why they support the diagnosis. Sue Huppert, Chief External and Governmental Affairs Officer at Des Moines University, said she worries the rules would prevent the full scope of medical training necessary to practice in Iowa. The University of Iowa houses the only obstetrics and gynecology residency program in the state. However, Hoopert said there has been interest from other healthcare organizations to create another residency program in the state. She urged the board to consider national accreditation requirements that are needed for the programs. Iowa has among the fewest OBGYN specialists per capita of any state in the country. According to data from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, one-third of Iowa counties are considered maternity care deserts. Without a hospital or birth center offering obstetric care and without any obstetric providers, according to a 2022 report by the March of Dimes, a nonprofit focused on maternal and infant health. The lack of providers, particularly in rural areas, force expecting women to frequently take off work and drive long distances for appointments. Quote, obstetrician gynecologists are already rare in Iowa, Bovers said. I do anticipate that adopting rules like these will make that situation even harder, unquote. Bovers said she is the only OBGYN at the hospital where she practices and has been unable to recruit another to replace two who retired. Quote, treating our patients as people who need to be interrogated about their traumas and treating providers as extensions of government needed to gather these details and document them in what should be records that reflect medical care is going to jeopardize our ability to form a bond with our patients and provide them good care, she said. And it's also going to jeopardize our ability to recruit and retain providers in the state. Stephen Wally, a physician and member of the board at the Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids, urged the board to provide better clarity to, quote, help avoid some of the risks that our providers face under these uncertain type of parameters, unquote. Quote, this is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is a health care issue, Wally said. Physicians are very risk-averse. They have their patients' interests in mind. And when they're faced with this dilemma of not knowing whether they're going to be adversely affected in their careers, making clinical decisions is not the appropriate direction they need to be faced with, unquote. Advocacy groups present budget priorities to Reynolds at hearing. Story written by Tom Barton of the Couriers Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Iowa advocacy groups made their pitches for priorities in Governor Kim Reynolds' budget proposal during a hearing on Wednesday. 
interest groups representing Iowa's largest employers, small businesses, community colleges, contractors, private schools, and health care providers applauded tax cuts and budget choices in past years, as well as allowing Iowa families to use state funding to pay for private school tuition. They also asked for further tax cuts and continued investments in the coming budget year to support workforce initiatives in areas like workplace learning, child care, affordable housing, and mental health services. Members representing Iowa livestock producers, farmers, and the agricultural industry also asked for continued funding for foreign animal disease preparedness. The legislative session starts Monday. Reynolds is scheduled to deliver her annual Condition of the State address at 6 p.m. Tuesday, where she will lay out her legislative priorities and her proposed budget, taxes. Republican lawmakers plan to accelerate the state income tax reductions already on the books, with a possible eye toward gradually eliminating the tax altogether. It's a move business and conservative taxpayer groups pushed for on Wednesday. Chris Hegnow, president of Iowans for Tax Relief and a former Republican state lawmaker, praised Reynolds' efforts to streamline state government and ensure Iowa taxpayers are getting value for their investment in government, unquote. Quote, and clearly, there is a significant room to continue to lower income tax rates and hopefully accelerate the implementation of our flat tax, Hagnow said. For each individual Iowan that may be struggling with this economy or just looking to get ahead, it allows them to keep more of their dollars, he said. Democrats have urged caution, noting a state panel projects state tax revenue will flatten during the next budget. Sales tax revenue, though, continues strong growth, helping to offset revenue reductions resulting from recently enacted state income tax cuts. Statehouse Republicans point to a $2.1 billion state budget surplus, which is projected to grow to $3.1 billion in the next fiscal year, plus another $3.7 billion in state's taxpayer relief fund as reasons to pursue further tax reductions. Reynolds this past February said her goal is to eliminate the state income tax by the end of her current four-year term, which ends in 2026. Workforce. Business group representatives continued to stress support for workforce initiatives including bolstering child care, housing, mental health, and apprenticeship initiatives. Ginny Sindelar, with the Associated Builders and Contractors of Iowa, said apprenticeship training grants have allowed the organization to offer training at a lower cost. Sindelar said the grant money has become vital to Iowa's manufacturing, health care, construction, and information technology industries. Quote, it has allowed us to lower tuition so our contractors can afford to hire and train more apprentices to help address the critical shortage of workers, she said. Quote, we have seen significant growth in enrollment and graduation numbers since the beginning of the grant program, unquote. Emily Shields, 
Executive Director of Community Colleges for Iowa, requested a $10 million increase, quote, to equalize funding across the state's community colleges and ensure that we can support students in all regions of the state and continue to make education and training affordable for them so that they can stay in Iowa, unquote. Reynolds said strengthening and supporting Iowa's workforce continues to be a top priority of her administration, quote, to child care, to housing, to really helping small companies upgrade through innovation and technology, which is another way that we're helping deal with the workforce, unquote. Health care, food aid, advocates for Iowa's food banks and mental health and substance abuse providers requested additional funding to raise wages to address workforce shortages and help feed more hungry Iowans. Michelle Book, CEO of Food Bank of Iowa, thanked Reynolds for her use of federal COVID-19 relief funds to assist food banks build capacity to help serve a growing number of food insecure Iowans. Quote, However, today 11% of Iowans live in poverty, Book said. More than 36% of working Iowa households don't make enough money to cover the cost of basic needs. In many parts of rural Iowa, a 20-hour job is the best job in town. However, this does not provide sufficient funding to raise a family, rent, or buy a house in a dynamic housing environment, secure quality daycare, drive a car, let alone purchase adequate nutritious food to support the growth and development of our state's youth, unquote. Roughly 300,000 Iowans lack access to nutritious food, including 100,000 children, Book said. Quote, As federal poverty benefits become more difficult for Iowans to access, I would encourage you to consider providing funds to help Feeding America food banks procure food for the over 1,200 pantries and feeding sites, which we support across all 99 Iowa counties, Book said. Quote, Today, we're funded by private donors. But going forward, we would like to embrace a public-private partnership to ensure that we are able to feed all hard-working Iowans and Iowans that have retired or live on disability. Iowa is among 17 states, nearly all led by Republican governors, that won't participate in a federal program that provides hundreds of millions of dollars for summer food aid for children. Reynolds said the state would not join the summer EBT program, opting instead to use state money to enhance other summer food programs she said are more nutritious. Lisa Packabier is executive director of REM Iowa, which delivers home and community-based programs for Iowans with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Packabier told Reynolds additional state support is needed to raise wages for caregivers. Quote, we are nearly 100% Medicaid funding, which means that we have no ability to cost shift or raise prices to increase our wages, she said. A rate increase directed at wages would help support and ensure that providers can recruit and retain a high-quality workforce to support vulnerable individuals with intellectual disabilities 
brain injuries, mental health challenges, co-occurring conditions, and other complex needs, unquote. Flora Smith, executive director for the Iowa Behavioral Health Association, lobbied for Reynolds and lawmakers to extend postpartum Medicaid coverage to include 12 months of postpartum care and to use money the state has received from settlements with opioid drug manufacturers to help bolster and expand mental health and substance abuse prevention, intervention, and treatment programs, including in schools. St. Paul's UMC Beef and Noodles Dinner is set for January 13th. Story written by Melody Parker. Waterloo. St. Paul's UMC Beef and Noodle Dinner will take place from 4 to 6 p.m. on January 13th at St. Paul's United Methodist Church at 207 West Louise Street. The menu will include all-you-can-eat beef and noodles, potatoes, coleslaw, beverages, and choice of dessert. Cost is $12 for adults and $6 for children 10 and under. And now, listeners, we remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 5th on IRIS, I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this public service announcement. What if, instead of looking down on people struggling with using drugs, we saw them as people instead? People who have interests and passions, people who have loved ones they care about, and loved ones who care about them. They have a very powerful illness, and they need help and support so they can live the life they want and deserve. See the person, not the addiction. Learn more at yourliveiowa.org, brought to you by the Iowa Department of Public Health. Now, let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial for today was written by Rick Moraine, who is a reporter and columnist with the Jefferson Herald. The year 2023 is over, and millions of people around the world are glad of that. Life today is challenging in the extreme for the population of Gaza and millions of residents of Sudan and South Sudan and Ukrainians under Russian siege and Uyghurs in far western China and millions more in the Caribbean, Central and South America who crave refuge from their gang and cartel-ridden neighborhoods. And there are many other sufferers as well. When we Americans complain about something, we may well have something to complain about. But compared to the challenges in other parts of the world, our problems are often small potatoes. That's not to say they're not real problems, but millions of the world's residents would give anything to trade theirs for ours. Kathy and I had another wonderful Christmas. Quality time with family, quality presents, quality food, too much of it. The holiday season, once again, didn't disappoint in terms of personal warmth and creature comforts. So, no complaints of that sort. But I'm ready to send my 2024 wish list off to the North Pole. A guy can dream. Some items didn't end up in my 2023 stocking. One unfulfilled hope would have brought a measure of peace to the victims of war 
brutality, domestic abuse, poverty, theft of all kinds, and other ills of modern society, and that kind of peace would settle on Washington as well. Bitter political warfare is hamstringing the nation. We need to find and support leaders who take governing seriously, not as a vehicle for amassing power and prestige. On the state level, Iowa's governor and legislature take pride in Iowa's full-to-bursting treasury reserves, while the state ranks near the bottom in mental health services, nursing home inspections, clean water, and some other categories that define quality of life for ordinary people. Low tax rates are not among them. Health care costs in the United States are much higher than in nearly all other well-to-do nations. It's past time for that to end. Either we're heading for irreversible climate catastrophe in a few decades, or the vast majority of climate scientists are all wet. The nation's institutions of higher education are the envy of the world, but we ignore the results of their research. Time to get serious about fossil fuels and other causes of climate change. Iowa and Greene County need more people. Our county's population reached its apex in the year 1900. It's been downhill in nearly every census since then. Our population is too mature to correct the problem through its birth rate alone. Encouraging people to move here deserves our concerted effort. I have other hopes as well. Football bowl victories for the Cyclones and Hawkeyes, athletic wins for the country's high school teams, a beefed-up St. Louis Cardinals pitching rotation. But you can't have everything. Let's start with achieving world peace, civil politics, reversing global warming, and reducing the cost of health care, and go from there. My 2023 Christmas stocking didn't receive my entire wish list, but at least I have stockings. Lots of people don't. Rick Moraine is a reporter and columnist with the Jefferson Herald. Next, from Dr. Andrea France, The Great Silencing, Censorship and the Loss of Women's Voices. At this writing, 19 community school districts in Iowa have removed from their shelves Margaret Atwood's award-winning dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale. That number is likely to go up as more schools across the state review what books are censor-worthy. School officials' banishment of Atwood's prescient glimpse of the future, published originally in 1985, is ironic on many levels given the themes of the book. But its new absence in the Iowa school libraries is a result of school officials doing their best to comply with the legislature's vague directive in its May 2023 law, SF-496, to remove access to content that could be deemed age-inappropriate, or that describes a sex act, or that relates to gender identity or sexual orientation for students in grades K-6. through Notably, this particular overreach on the part of Iowa's GOP supermajority has already resulted in school districts removing over 450 titles, the works of approximately 300 authors, according to a comprehensive database created by the Des Moines Register reporters 
Tim Weber, and Samantha Hernandez. At least two major lawsuits are pending to challenge the law. In her 2017 introduction to The Handmaid's Tale for the Anchor Books edition, Atwood wrote about her effort to make the science fiction of the future she was trying to construct seem as real and consequently believable as possible. Back in 1984, the main premise seemed, even to me, fairly outrageous. Would I be able to persuade readers that the United States of America had suffered a coup that had transformed an erstwhile liberal democracy into a literal-minded theocratic dictatorship? In the book, the Constitution and Congress are no longer. The Republic of Gilead is built on a foundation of the 17th century Puritan roots that have always lain beneath the modern-day America we thought we knew. Fairly outrageous, indeed. For those who have not read The Handmaid's Tale, the plot is both complex and straightforward. It posits what life for women would look like were a totalitarian, patriarchal, theocratic regime to replace the United States' current form of government. Spoiler alert, it ain't good. While Gilead's new leaders in the novel move to immediately cut off women's access to their own money and remove them from jobs they held prior to the coup, perhaps one of the more startling changes is to outlaw women's literacy. Women are forbidden from reading or writing, and if they are discovered doing either, the offense warrants extreme punishment, even death. Removing women's civil rights, bodily autonomy, and effectively their voices assure the elite males in the novel continued power with limited resistance. What is censorship but a sanctioned, organized means of suppressing ideas that challenge, frighten, or offend those in power? Muzzling voices that challenge the status quo is obviously nothing new. True to her stated goal not to create any detail of oppression so outlandish as to be unbelievable, Atwood used history to inform how she would deftly dramatize the futuristic silencing of women. As she well knew, many cultures, both historic and modern, have embraced the power of limiting access to information and shutting down completely non-conforming ideas. The 5th century BCE Athenian court deemed Socrates and his teaching as corrupting influences on the impressionable Greek youth and ordered his execution. China has long managed the content of publications by controlling all publishing houses. Thus, the state serves as gatekeeper before dissenting ideas can ever be given a voice. Afghanistan's Taliban currently limits girls and women the right to an education past the sixth grade because it could lead to demands for other rights. And the United States is far from being an outlier on this issue. The Comstock Act of 1873 made it illegal to disseminate any materials deemed obscene, lewd, or lascivious through the mail or across state lines. Who determined what might qualify as obscene in that era? Duly elected, morally upright white men, of course. And in 1873, a woman was considered morally corrupt 
if she demonstrated even a hint of sexuality. Thus, the Comstock Act completely barred, among other things, any literature that mentioned contraception, sexual health, or abortion. Sound familiar? In each of the examples, the philosophy appears to be the same. Deny public access to problematic information, and those in power stay there. The result is, of course, a forced silence. Advocates of SF-496 have argued that removing, quote, age-inappropriate books from school library shelves is not censorship. It is, instead, an effort to protect children from the trauma and maintain community values. But the U.S. Supreme Court has historically drawn a legal line between unprotected speech, obscenity, and protected speech, that which merely offends, though Atwood's version of the female future in The Handmaid's Tale does depict sexual enslavement, even the current conservative, newly ethics-bound U.S. Supreme Court would be hard-pressed to label it obscene. It is simply uncomfortable. And that is really the point. In a close examination of the Des Moines Register's database of books pulled from Iowa school library shelves, it is noteworthy that nearly two-thirds of the authors in that list identify with she, her pronouns. As Atwood's dystopian cautionary tale indicates, women's voices have a long history of addressing the unmentionable truths of our society, personal autonomy, reproductive health care, sex, sexuality, rape, intellectual, and physical freedom. And these truths are often the ideas censors or those in power seek to silence under the auspices of protection and decency. Denying access to sources of information and ideas, even those outside the mainstream, is to actively smother intellectual autonomy, and to do nothing about it ensures a dystopian present, as Atwood's handmaid observed, quote, We lived, as usual, by ignoring. Ignoring isn't the same of, as ignorance. You have to work at it. Nothing changes instantaneously. In a gradually heating bathtub, you'd be boiled to death before you knew it. Dr. Andrea France is Professor of Digital Media at Buena Vista University. Now we have Art Cullen, the editor of the Storm Lake Times pilot, COVID and Turkey Sandwiches on Christmas. We had been no vids, Dolores and I, all this time, or so we thought, until Christmas Eve. Doing a single load of dishes can knock me out such that I must retire to watch at least one half of a Big East basketball game. Last Friday, I nearly passed out on the knives and forks, and by the feast tested positive for COVID. Dolores tested positive a couple of days later. Lucky for her that she no longer can smell me. Good for me that I got my last vaccine shot a few weeks ago. Otherwise, I would not be smoking and joking. Color me blue. We're okay. It's been a long time coming. In late 2019, I was so sick I actually went to the doctor. She advised I could have any number of upper respiratory viral nasties. I figured as much and coughed my way through it. Ribs be damned. Saw my mother's mother's mother in B. 
beatific visions, telling me that I should not have stolen cigarettes from her when I was twelve. I picked up my mat and walked after a couple weeks. There were isolated reports of some strong SARS virus cropping up. I took off for New York City to help judge the Pulitzer Prizes. Folks were talking about it there. I flew to California and spoke at Berkeley in early 2020, just as everyone was getting edgy. I was in airports hither and yon, transferring and waiting among the filthy masses, breathing that Hunan air at me without a mask. By the time I lit in Storm Lake, the Newell Fonda girls once stayed again, and even Big East basketball was canceled. The lights went dark on Lake Avenue. The Storm Lake Times was wheezing and tumbling. A man, glowing orange, stood on the veranda of the White House, wondering out loud if bleach might work. Is this real, or are we all in one huge brain fog? Meantime, Sun Joe, the roving minstrel, had been holed up in a New Orleans missionary shelter and knew he had to come home before he caught Calvinism. He hopped a greyhound for Omaha. Can you imagine that ride? I met him at night in the yellow cast of the bus terminal parking lot as the riders streamed out from the men's room. None of them had a mask. There's Joe wearing a mask. He jumps in the car. We have the windows down and are freezing to death. I was blowing smoke everywhere, trying to kill germs. Quote, Girl with faraway eyes by the Rolling Stones came on the radio, and Joe deprogrammed from fire and brimstone on a curve south of Odebolt. Neither of us got sick. Lovely daughter Claire was stuck in an apartment editing the Cedar Rapids Gazette from her laptop and got so lonely she came home. We all got by thanks to miracles large and small. You have to give Trump this. He got the vaccines rolling. He was not stupid enough to stand in Nancy Pelosi's way. The whole damn thing was a modern marvel of science, logistics, and human goodwill. It was done right here in the USA and rolled out despite Kim Reynolds and Ron DeSantis. God bless these public health nurses standing at the fairgrounds near the sheep barn, giving me a shot through my rolled-down car window. The virus, in its cunning, morphed, by my dim understanding, to give up some deadliness in order to evade vaccine outer defenses. Although COVID slipped through my border fence with a torch, it was not able to bury me because of the vaccine. I sweated in bed at night like Rudy Giuliani. My brain was foggier than normal. The dishes piled up. Dolores managed to throw food together for us, bless her. It rained Christmas Day. Peach was going to stir crazy and had to pee. Dolores and I were both in chills under blankets, had to let her out, and Peach bolted off before we could cough boo. She came home wet with something dead, a gift. Lord knows how we caught it. Kate Keeley's nose was running like Niagara Falls before the holidays. John Robinson's ear plugged up. So did mine. He felt fine a day later. I got worse. It wasn't like we were slow dancing together. You could hear Tom coughing in the back room, but he coughs year-round. Jen Olson was sick, but she has a son in grade school 
and we know how that goes. By the time you figure out you have COVID, it's already embedded everywhere. I might have caught it through an email from a filmmaker, Beth Evison, in New York, who went down for the count a few days before me. It's everywhere all at once. We shrug it off and get back to work after the so-called holidays, as if it were the common cold. That is, because of science and vaccines. Period. Full stop. And now, Grassley's donate memorabilia and fund professorship at the University of Northern Iowa. Dateline Cedar Falls. The University of Northern Iowa will house papers and other historic data related to U.S. Senator Charles Grassley's time in the Senate. It was announced Wednesday. In addition, Grassley and his wife Barbara will endow a professorship in the Department of Political Science. The gift makes you and I the repository of artifacts spanning the entirety of Grassley's political career. The Rod Library already houses Grassley's political papers from his time in the Iowa House of Representatives and the U.S. House of Representatives through 1980. Now, all materials related to his time in the U.S. Senate will reside at the university upon conclusion of his service there. Donna R. Hoffman, Ph.D., has been named the Chuck and Barbara Grassley Professor of Political Science. Hoffman is a nationally known scholar of presidential rhetoric and teaches courses on American political institutions at the university. As Chuck and Barbara Grassley Professor of Political Science, Hoffman will provide programming to UNI students and the broader community related to her scholarship on the importance of Congress and public service. Quote, I am honored to be named the inaugural Chuck and Barbara Grassley Professor of Political Science. Senator Grassley's commitment to public service is longstanding and has its roots at Iowa State Teachers College, now University of Northern Iowa. Senator and Mrs. Grassley's gift confirms their trust in our commitment to preparing the next generation of public servants and citizens who understand that the continued functioning of our democracy isn't automatic, but requires concerted effort and education, Hoffman said in a news release. And here in the article, we have a photograph showing Vice President Kamala Harris as she participates in the ceremonial swearing-in of Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican from Iowa, with his wife, Barbara Grassley, in the old Senate chamber on Capitol Hill in Washington last year. Quote, we hope scholars and students will use my Senate papers as part of their research and teaching. With this gift, we hope to support the teaching and research mission of the University of Northern Iowa, allowing scholars and students the academic freedom to explore American government and public policy, said Grassley. Quote, it's more important than ever that students learn to vigorously analyze political issues and develop the ability to discuss them with others, including those with whom they disagree, unquote. Quote, we are most grateful for Senator and Mrs. Grassley's time-honored commitment to the University of Northern Iowa, said UNI President Mark Nook. 
Quote, the gifts of papers and endowed professorship are a tremendous testimony to the value of our mission to educate curious and engaged future leaders committed to public service. The gifts also create a unique opportunity to build a lasting tribute to Senator Grassley's distinguished career and lifelong commitment to civic education and public service. Grassley has held public office since 1959, when he was elected to the Iowa House. He graduated from UNI in 1955, when it was known as Iowa State Teachers College, with a Bachelor of Arts degree. He received a Master of Arts degree, majoring in political science, from the university in 1956. He became the most senior member of the Senate a year ago, after Patrick Leahy decided not to seek another term in 2022. Now for a look at sports. Under college women's basketball, UNI beats Evansville and halts Skid. Story written by Ethan Petrick. Dateline Cedar Falls. The Northern Iowa women's basketball team picked up its first win since November 6th with an 82-52 beatdown of Evansville on Thursday. UNI head coach Tanya Warren said it was exciting for the Panthers to halt their nine-game losing streak and earn their first Missouri Valley Conference win of the season. Quote, it has been a long time coming, Warren said. I thought our attention to detail was very, very good, and I am extremely proud of this team. Quote, we needed to get a W, and we needed to start to play good basketball. I thought for the last two and a half weeks, we had practiced pretty well. I thought you started to see it a little bit at Iowa State. I thought we played hard. We did some good things in that game. Then, I thought we played well at Missouri State. We just did not get the W. But I really liked how this team had practiced and was competitive. It was more about attention to details on both sides of the basketball and playing to win, unquote. Emerson Green and Rachel Hitala drilled a pair of three-pointers in the first three minutes of action to build a lead you and I would never relinquish. The Panthers set the tone early, jumping out to a 16-3 lead in the first five minutes of action, forcing six turnovers, including four UNI steals, and allowing Evansville to make just one of its first 11 field goal attempts. Quote, I thought we did a terrific job of switching up defenses, and I thought we did a really good job of trapping and getting the ball and getting some steals, Warren said. Quote, our attention to detail was very good. We wanted to switch and keep them out of the paint and do it without fouling. For the most part, in the first half, we did a terrific job of that, unquote. After one quarter of play, the Panthers led by 14 points, their largest lead to that point, after a three-point play from Kaylin Morgan in the final minute, pushed the lead to 25-11. to 11. Sophomore forward Riley Goble provided a spark for the Panthers off the bench, scoring eight points in the first quarter, securing four steals, grabbing three rebounds, and recording one block. Warren described Goble's performance as looking a lot like her old self 
as the center point Urbana product finished with 10 points, 6 rebounds, 4 steals, 3 blocks, and 1 assist. Warren noted that 2023-24 MVC Preseason Player of the Year, Grace Bofelli, is getting close to a return from an undisclosed injury, which has forced her to miss the previous five contests. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 5th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can listen to a recording of this reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just go to our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <music>